If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about prototyping. We're talking about three different stages of bringing your prototype to life, and we're talking to Gino Brancasio from Tinkerbot Games. Gino, welcome to the show. Hi, Gabe. Thanks very much. Really, really pleased to be here. Yeah, man. Glad to have you here. You wrote an article a while back about mm-hmm. prototyping, about these three different stages, and I thought it was so interesting because you you did a lot more than just go to Hobby Lobby, go to the hobby store, and buy craft supplies, cut out stuff. Like it was a lot more in depth. There's like, a whole different angle, different perspective on these different stages, and so I'm excited to to chat about that. Just kind of open up people's eyes, maybe to a different way of thinking, especially newer game designers that that aren't really, you know, hadn't figured it out yet, still trying to figure out their style, their prototyping style, because I think that's one thing that you, you learn early on is how how you prototype, because some people are crazy arts and crafts folks, <laughs> and they just do amazing work with a game that is never going to actually turn into anything. They just really love the, the arts and crafts side of things. And then some people, you know, they just get some note cards and a die or two and, and just throw them on the table and that's it. And so anyway, I, I feel like prototyping is such a, a big spectrum of what people do. But anyway, before we get into that, let's uh, let's hear from you. Who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, great question. So, yeah, uh, my name's Gino. Like you said, um, I have been in, I mean, I've been in board games now for probably about 10 years since I met my wife. Um, she um, had a friend who said, oh, come over and we'll, we'll play these board games and, you know, Back in those days, I was thinking, oh, you know, Monopoly, Scrabble, the usual run-of-the-mill things that people have, you know, remember from their childhood. And he brought out this game, Chaos of the Old World, I think it's called, um, and it was not like nothing we'd ever played before. It was absolutely incredible. And I thought, this is amazing. I was like, are there more games like this? You know, thinking this was kind of a, a one special thing, and it, it, you could see him kind of light up and go, oh, you've got no idea. And I think um, one of the next games he, he brought out for us another session was. Uh, descent you know and we went from playing you know your, your, your normal family board games you get around at christmas to you know spending an entire day playing one game and getting to the end of the day saying i want more you know let's keep going let's let's go through this and discovering this huge game collection um and that just got me hooked from that moment on and then um i've got a friend called uh, bevan who you've actually interviewed before on this show um Bevan Clatworthy, and he was doing some tinkering with some board game design, and he was doing something called uh, a board game redesign competition that was part of um, the UK's biggest convention that we have here called the UK Games Expo. And the way that works is um, all the entrants get a copy of a board game that a particular shop has lots of stock of, um, and you are told that you've got to use all the components in this box to design a brand new board game. Um, And that's what is a redesign competition. 
So we heard that Bevan was doing that, and a friend of mine and I said, oh, why don't we have a go? Sounds like fun, you know, give it a shot. Um, so we entered as well, and the three of us worked on two different game designs, and we had an absolute blast. Um, and by the time it was done, neither of us won. We both, we both designs got to the finals, but we didn't win. Um, but we thought, you know what, that was a lot of fun. Let's let's keep doing that, but let's just do it with our own designs now and our own components and things. And so um, Bevan and I formed a company, and we, we decided to take that route and go into the board game design we've got one game published now and an expansion after that and uh we're still going still still going about five six years later very cool i love how your first introduction into the the hobby gaming side of things was chaos in the old world you know most people it's Catan, <laughs> it's seven wonders it's splendor it's like a nice kind of family game to welcome you in with basic mechanisms and like a nice little theme but no, Chaos in the Old World, where the board is like stretched human skin, and it's yeah. like this super kind of crazy, dark, uh, anything. But So anyway, I, I just find that uh, interesting, that that was your introduction. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And, you know, it was it was uh, a, a very interesting introduction to board games. But to his credit, um, the, the guy in question, a guy called Adam, um, he is a fantastic board games um, uh uh, explainer so he can take a really complex game and explain it to anyone and he's a really good dm as well he's really good at making sure that the players are getting the best from the game and getting a really good experience even if it means that he might end up losing um so i'm, I'm really glad that um he was the kind of person that, that introduced me to the board games because he took something complex and quite deep like chaos of the old world um and made it a really enjoyable experience for me who's never you know someone who's never really kind of played one of those games before um, it probably took twice as long as it would have done with anybody else because we'd never played those kind of games um but it was something i still remember to this day just a wonderful experience of, of learning about this this world and his theme and these rules and there's all these different actions you can take them um and it just got me hooked from day one yeah very cool all right let's uh, let's change gears let's talk about prototyping mm-hmm. now the three stages and i'll just say them right off the bat here, player journey tone yeah. and feel and then real world yeah. and so tell me kind of about the genesis how you like, started figuring out these three different things to be thinking about with prototyping because obviously prototyping is cards and dice and note cards and Mm -hmm. and taking notes and and tabletop simulator or, you know, whatever other digital simulator you want to use. I mean, there's so many different, like, obvious things about prototyping, you know, go buy a bunch of dice, go buy some tokens and some pawns or make your own or whatever, and then throw them out there, see if the game is any good. But you kind of look at it from a different angle. And so tell me about the different angle overall, just kind of the overview, and then we'll dive into the specifics. Yeah. And I think um, it's probably helpful at this point to explain, and, and I imagine any listeners who are involved in the tech sector might start to recognize some of the, the concepts here. But um, my day job is is working in the tech sector. Uh, and um, I was at a conference that the company I was working for was holding at the time. And there was a seminar about um, user experience or UX um, and user interface UI. And there was a wonderful guy called Will doing a presentation about, um, you know, if you're designing a brand new platform online or a new app, like the different stages of design and, and, and prototyping essentially, but for a tech platform. And he was talking about how, you know, you could make an absolutely beautiful prototype of a tech platform that is useless and no fun and nobody wants to use it. And it doesn't give the users what you want to give them. And you've wasted a huge amount of time. And as he was talking and talking and talking, I thought, oh, this this applies to the prototyping I'm doing. I've, I've done this. I've made beautiful prototypes that were awful games. And um, so it really kind of perked my ears up and, and piqued my interest. 
And so I've kind of taken a lot of the principles um, from from these discussions and, and other things I've learned from kind of the UX world, and I've applied them to the way that we design prototypes. And this is a, a, a system or, or a, a mentality, I guess, that is not going to work for everyone. And I absolutely understand that. And I think that it's it's not designed to work for everyone. What I'm trying to do in, in these, what I call the three distinct stages of prototyping, is to help stop or reduce the amount of time that people waste on on things they don't need to spend time on just yet. Um, you know, it's, it's about, I guess, prototyping in a more smart, more streamlined way um, so that you can spend more of your time and effort later on on the certain things you need to spend time and effort on at the right time. Because I know my own experiences and talking to other designers who have had the same thing, you sometimes have a great idea. You think, oh, I've got this wonderful idea for a game and these mechanics are going to be brilliant and they're going to be great. And you work on your, your, you know, your first few stages of prototyping because, you, you, so you prototype because, you know it's going to work and it's going to be brilliant. And then you take it to a table and you, you know, you, you play with the plays and you think, oh, actually that really doesn't work. And this entire deck of 94 cards I've made needs to change drastically. And that's a huge investment of time and effort and, you know, emotional investment as well. And um, if I can help players to reduce that um, loss, I guess, then I'm hoping that more people will, will continue to work on prototypes because it's certainly put me off working on some of my designs when I spent ages working on a prototype and I realized that actually there's a lot of change I need to make and I spent too much time making it look good rather than actually testing the game itself. So that's kind of what this is for, is to kind of help people to um, reduce the amount of wasted time and, and, and effort before they um, they get to the later stages of their prototype. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just the opportunity cost that goes into taking a bunch of time uh, on, I've talked on the, on the show in the past about how you feel like you're making progress because you're moving, you're doing Absolutely. something, you're cutting things out, or you're looking up icons online, or you're looking up clip art that you can put on the cards, and you feel like progress is being made. Yeah. When the truth is, you're really just wasting time. You're pr- procrastinating, but it feels like productivity uh, because most of the time those things don't matter either they're going to get changed or they're not going to be used in the final version anyway or you know an icon that's good enough is good enough like you Absolutely. don't have to find the perfect one you don't have to find the perfect clip art and so yeah you can find yourself wasting a ton of time and then like you said you know it's like well i just have to change 94 cards and that's frustrating and that just took me hours and hours and hours to, to do it the first time and i don't want to do that again let me go watch Netflix. Let me go do something else. And so I can see a lot of people getting frustrated and just kind of overwhelmed and and walking away. And so, yeah, it makes sense to to be thinking about this kind of stuff in in those terms. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into the first one. Let's talk about player journey. You know, I've talked about this in the past when it comes to designing a game and Mm -hmm. the arc of the game and and what players are going to be experiencing and things like that. But tell me what you're, what you mean as, as it refers to prototyping. Yeah. So, um, for me, you know, there's often the debate about people talking about, you know, what, how should you design a game? Do you work theme first, mechanics first? As a, you know, people kind of do both. Um, uh, and whenever I'm working on any of my prototypes or, or working with other people on their prototypes, I always want to really, really want to focus on the experience the players are having, right? So, in my opinion, the first stage of, of your prototype should be really focusing on your player journey. And what I mean by that is, does the game you've designed so far and the rules that you've put in place, does that take the game, uh, sorry, does your game take the player on a journey that you want them to experience with the game? So, you know, it, it could be something like, um, you know, if you're looking to design a two-player real-time war game, then 
you know, you could have scraps of paper on a table representing models or whatever you want it to be. Um, but do the players feel like they're commanding units across a battlefield based on the rules that you've already put in place here, based on the dice that you might have decided to use or, or whatever it might be? Um, if you're working on a, a four player party dexterity game, you know, are your players laughing? Are they having the experience they want them to have? And you can do that with an absolute minimalist um, uh, prototype. And I think that's something that people really need to focus on um, in stage one of the prototype, which is, like I said, the player journey. So when you're working on your prototype and your first stages of it, you know, when you're trying to decide how much time and effort to put into the prototype pieces, forget for the time being how it looks. It, you're not really worried about if it looks pretty, if it looks nice, if it looks neat. Just focus on, are these components going to give me the ability to test test that player journey and get my players to see if they're going to have the experiences that I'm hoping they're going to have. Um, and and there's, a, there's a few things to take into account here. The fact that um, your replace rate is what I, the term I, I, I consider is probably going to be really high because this is going to be early in your prototype, right? So you're going to go through lots of changes and, and different versions of your prototype which is one of the main reasons for not spending too much time working on getting the exact right icon, working on the right typeface or font, you know, making sure you're using perfect hexagons rather than just something you cut out of a cardboard box from a cereal packet. Um, you know, you're going to be changing those components all the time. And it could be digital as well. Even if you're doing it on Tabletop Simulator, it still takes time to make changes to your digital files. So your replace rate is going to be high. So don't give yourself too much to replace make it so the changes are quick and easy. Um, and as a result, the quality of components are going to be, you know, they're going to be cheap and easy and quick. They're going to be handwritten components or scraps of paper. They're going to be stick men drawings. Um, you're going to borrow components from other games. You know, don't go out spending a lot of money on things that may not necessarily work later down the game. And I, I've done that actually recently in my own game um, that I'm working on. I, I spent some money on a, um, a quite expensive prototype component that I needed to test. It turns out, doesn't actually work for the game. I'm probably going to use it in another game, but um, it, you know, it was something I, I at the moment have wasted money on. But um, it's a lesson I'm still learning myself. Right, and honestly, though, you, sometimes you just need that physical component just to see if the idea in your head can be translated into the real world and it work. And you know, I love what you're talking about, though, as far as like thinking through the player experience, the player journey, what the players are going to be doing right from the get-go, right from the actual prototype on a table. And I've, I've done this several times, almost accidentally, where I've got an idea for a game. It works really well in my head. It's probably the best game ever. It's probably going to sell more copies in Monopoly. And then I get it on the table in an actual proto prototype form, and I just go, okay, this this doesn't work. Like, physically, this doesn't work. And the way the, the game is set up or the car, like, it's just, once I get it on a table, it's like, oh, oh, okay, it works so perfectly in my head, but it, it never survives contact with the, with the table. And so, you know, I think it's so important for especially new designers to get the idea out of your head and onto a table. It's just, just as soon as possible and make it cheap, make it easy, get it out there, push the cards around, push the dice around, push the tokens around and go, oh, OK, this is how it actually works in real world meat space. And then then go from there, because until you do that, it just lives in your head. And it, it is the best game ever, ever made. It is better than you know all the other games in the market it's going to sell more copies of monopoly but once you get in the real world man everything changes yeah i, I completely agree and and you know to give you an example to expand on what i mentioned earlier um the the game i had was a um a hidden movement game you know with a fog of war for both sides and at the moment a lot of the games that i've played that have that have either a third player who's keeping an eye on both sides of the of the board and, and seeing who's in what location so if there's ever a match and you're in the same space someone can tell you or you're both in the same space you both you know need to resolve 
resolve your conflict by combat, whatever it is, or you need an app to do that for you. And I designed a component set that would do that for you. It would actually tell you if you were in the same place. And I got somebody to design some laser cut files for me to be able to do this because they're, they're components that you put together, um, almost like a jigsaw. And we had them made and we tried them out and it worked. But it wasn't until we actually tried it that we realized that it slowed the game around, de- slow, slowed the game down, sorry, desperately. And it just made it not fun. And as, as annoying as it was, the fact that I'd made this component and it worked, it did exactly what I wanted to do. It didn't give me the player journey and the experience that I was hoping for because it slowed the movement mechanic down so much that it, it took away most of the fun element of moving around this board quickly and, and, and hiding from people and chasing after people. Um, and realistically, I could have tested that with pieces of card that I'd cut out in about 10 minutes, but instead I got really excited and I spent probably about 40 pounds, which is what, $60, $70 getting some laser cut, laser cut components made, um, which I didn't need to do. I just got too excited and I, I thought this is going to work. I know it's going to work and it did work. What I didn't anticipate was how much it would slow down the game. So learning myself here, even years later, I still should have worked on a cheaper, quicker prototype at that stage because I hadn't tested it enough with the real players. Yeah, that's a really good point. But man, it's hard though, isn't it? Like it is you, you just get excited, you get you get the juice flowing. You're like, oh, this is so cool, and and especially if it does work early on, mm-hmm. right? But then, man, yeah, sometimes you just end up wasting money. And I don't know that it's the worst thing in the world because you you are able to kind of take that momentum, take that excitement forward. And if it does work, you know, here and there. But I don't know. I, I like I like the energy. So it's, I feel like it's finding a balance, right? Finding Absolutely. things that get you going, that get you motivated to actually work on something creative, which is no small task. I mean, there's a million other things you could be doing at any given moment, and so. Finding the the energy to just do something creative is not an easy thing, but at the same time, you don't want to spend that that energy on a waste of time. And so, you know, finding that place in the middle, it uh, it's it's it's, it's challenging. And I guess you just kind of have to figure out what works individually. You know, I wish I had like some kind of nugget of wisdom be like okay here's how you do it perfectly every time it doesn't exist you just kind of have to trial and error right yeah there's no there's no solution here that is perfect for everyone and i think it really depends on on the individual i think if this had happened to me four or five years ago when i started designing i probably would have been put off to the design um for quite a while i think i would have been quite upset by the amount of time and effort i'd put in and realized that that didn't work and that was really what i was most excited by um about the game um but now i'm a bit older and wiser i went okay that doesn't work I took me off 24 hours to accept the fact that this wasn't going to be in the game, although I was really you know, invested in it being there. I put it in a stack of other components and I thought, I'm going to put that in another game another day. It's okay. I will use this somewhere else because I know it works, but I know it needs to be a different experience and that's fine. And it took me a couple of days of talking to myself and sitting myself down and, and saying, look, you know, it's fine. We can do this. We can move on. If you're able to do that, then you can you can take the risk of working on components uh, with a bit more investment. Um, but I think earlier in my journey, I think it would have definitely affected me more. Yeah, it's a good point. As as you grow in your design journey, I guess um, you learn that it's not about never; it's about not right now. Mm-hmm. And you might have a really cool idea; it just doesn't work yet. Maybe because your skill level as a designer is not there yet. Maybe maybe it's too big for you to really pull off at this moment in your journey. And maybe it's going to take a few years, and then you'll figure it out. I know that's happened to me several times. I've got a game right now called Robomon that I started working on years ago. And it was just above my pay grade. It was like, there's no way I cannot do this. Let me put it on the shelf for a while. And then some years later, it's like, okay, I got an idea on a, on a way to overcome those obstacles that I couldn't figure out early on. Now I think I've got some ideas. And, and so nothing is wasted really as a game designer. Now, if you're just doing one project, then 
then yeah. But if you've got other ideas, other designs, then it hopefully will will come back around. But uh, let's move on to number two. Let's talk about tone and feel. What does that mean in this context? Yeah, and and I, I'll I'll try and. Um make this as clear as I can. And it's quite difficult to do um, unless you can kind of show people, I guess. So I'm doing, I'll do the best I can in, in an auditory way. Um, at this stage, you're prototyping. Hopefully you've got your game prototype and your game design down to a, a point where you're at the tinkering stage is what we call in Tinkerbots with me and, with me and Bevan. Your major rules, your major um, design elements of the game are pretty solid at this point. And you're mostly going to be tinkering with the finer details. It might be the number of points that people score, it might be the strength and the defense numbers on different characters. It might be how big a certain player's uh, deck is in combat. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be tweaks to the game rather than major changes. And as a result, your replace rate for prototypes are probably going to be quite low. After each play test, you might be making changes to, say, a handful of cards rather than an entire deck, or you might be changing one of the components from hexagonal pieces to square pieces or whatever it might be, which, you know, is going to be quite a big change, but you're not going to be doing it very often. It's not going to be after every play test. So when you're at that point, this is a good time to start thinking about, okay, the players are having the right experience. Now, how can I make the components of this prototype better suit the experience so that it kind of enhances it for the players. So this is a point where you might want to get some, um, you know, get rid of your stick man figures now and start looking for clip art or, um, you know, um, uh, Creative Commons license, uh, free license artwork that's online. And there's loads of it online. There's one, loads of wonderful free resources for board game uh, prototypes. And there's some great artwork you can get, which is license-free as well. There was something on, I think, Humble Bundle recently where you could buy thousands of different pictures and icons. And this is the point where you go, okay, I'm going to spend some time and find a really good icon that represents you know, this character or this move or this attack or whatever it is. Because what you want your players to do now is not just go through the game and get the experience of it, but really feel it. You want them to really go, yeah, I, I understand why this sword does so much damage because it's really big. Or, you know, you want to say, yeah, I, I can kind of understand how this this car moves so fast because it's got massive wheels and it's got a big engine or whatever it is. Um, and you might want to start thinking about the actual um, tactile components you've got on the, on the table as well. So, you know, um, thinking about our first game, uh, Ghostal, when we were first prototyping it, um, this is Bevan's design, we had little pieces of paper that represented the ghosts that the players were using to move around the, the, the table. And we've got a rule in the, in the, in the, in the rule book that says that at the end of each round, you pick up your ghost and you move it back to the attic, which is at the top of the board. Um, and you say, woo, as you go, right? So the ghosts, woo, the way back to the, to the attic. And, you know, at that stage, when it's just pieces of paper on the, on the, on the table, players would pick up the piece of paper and they just go, woo, and put it to the top of the thing. And that's fine because they're just moving bits of paper, right? We, at this stage, got some 3D printed ghosts made because we didn't want to use ghosts from other games because we thought it might confuse people. So we had some little 3D figured, uh, 3D printed ghost figures printed for each player. Um, and at that point, you could see it, it changed drastically. Just having an actual ghost on the board that you moved around, it looked great. It got people's attention when we were at conventions and at playtest sessions. People could see these ghosts on the table and they can understand straight away, this is a game about ghosts, I understand, because there are ghosts moving around a board. But at the point where they had to move their ghost back to the attic, people were waving the ghosts around in the air as if the ghost was flying through the air back to the attic and making much more effort with the woo. You know, it was it was a, a distinct difference with the players. And, and that really hit home to me how the right components of, that, of this stage at the right time can make a big difference to the way that people play the game. So what you're trying to do here is um, if you are 
especially planning on pitching the game to a to a publisher, you're trying to get across to them, I guess, the idea of what this game should feel and look like in your head um, if it were to get picked up and published. And of course, you can't guarantee that with a lot. You know, most of you know by now, if you've listened to this show, a lot of publishers will take any artwork you've done before and go, yeah, that's great, but we're going to do our own. But it's really helpful, I think, if people, the players, publishers, reviewers um, can take a look at what you're doing and say, okay, I understand the tone of this game. You know, is it uh, a ghost themed game? That's really quite scary. And it's got an adult theme here. You know, there's lots of, um, of quite terrifying imagery and there's some, some deep components here that you might be using, or is it a family-based ghost game? Are there cartoony characters? Are there cutesy little 3d ghost figures? You know, the components at this stage should help give across to the players and anyone else playing the game what that kind of tone of the game is. And at this point, because you're doing much less replacing of components, you've got the the time and the ability and the you know investment to make those those changes and improvements to the qualities of your components. And even at this stage, you know, it, it doesn't need to be 3D printed. We we worked with um air drying clay to make our first ghosts um, before we 3D printed anything. Um, and you know you can cut out again bits of cardboard you can reuse other tokens but it's it's at this point you're starting to think about the components in terms of how helping the players to understand the way that you would look, like the game to look and feel yeah that makes sense and it, it's at this point that taking a little extra time and finding just the right icon just the right image is actually productive it's not wasting mm-hmm. time hopefully it's not procrastination now i don't i don't think you have to find the perfect one and if you just keep scrolling forever you are wasting time but now like you said it's a good good time to figure out as far as the images to set the right tone to really figure out the the ux design the graphic design to make sure when players play test the game the graphic design works and you've got icons and images and things like that that they're actually you're testing that just as much as you are testing if the game is fun and if it works or you know balance and things like that and so that that makes a lot of sense uh, in this stage, take a little extra time, especially like I said, right before you you pitch it, and make sure mm-hmm. everything's clear, because you might not have another opportunity with that publisher. You know, you might get that five minute sit down at a convention or something like that, and they look at it and they go, "I don't get it," and then that's that's it. There is no other opportunity, and so you really want it to be as clear and obvious as possible, especially when it comes to t- the tone and the graphic design and, and things like that. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's move on to uh, stage number three. Let's talk about real world. What does that mean? Yeah, so at this stage, um, you know, not everyone is going to want to get to this stage of their prototype. And um, this is what I call the real world or the reviewer's copy of your game. So if you are planning on going to Kickstarter and self-publishing this, then you're at the stage now where you are your game shouldn't be having any replacements. Your game is as finished as you're going to get it. You know, and obviously everyone knows no design is ever really finished. Every design is going to all count continue to want to make tweaks and improvements. But at this point, realistically, you're not changing any of the numbers on the cards. You're not changing any of the the major or even minor rules and and decks or components of the game. Um, But what you are trying to do is either go straight into self-publishing if if you've got the resources and the confidence to be able to do that, um, or you're going to want to go to Kickstarter. And if you're going to be going to Kickstarter, especially these days, less so say six, seven years ago when people were a bit more, it was, it was newer to the world. These days, people want to see what the game is going to look like. They're going to want to see examples of the artwork and how it's going to look when it's finished. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to have all of the artwork done, but you need to have examples of the artwork as you expect it to look when the game has been published, um, if you're publishing through Kickstarter. So um, to give you an example, when we went through our first board game, again, Ghostal, we picked an illustrator that we really liked, a guy called Tyler, 
um, who was a caricaturist. And we had a, a bit of following on social media and we handpicked, um, uh, so we, we randomly picked um, a number of our followers who entered a competition and we had them turned into characters in a game. So each of the characters in a game is a real person. So we paid our illustrator with our own funds to get those illustrations done. We paid a graphic designer to get the graphic design done on the cards. Uh, so they worked in a much better, much more efficient way and all the all the right information was in the right place when you're holding cards in your hands, you know, so the, the information is displayed as you hold your cards. Um, and we were able to go to Kickstarter then and say, right, we can't afford to pay for over the hundred pieces of artwork that we need at the moment, but that's what we're here at Kickstarter for. We need your help to get this game made. And with the funds we're going to raise, we're going to pay our artists to get all this done. And we're going to pay our graphic designer to, to get all the cards organized and all the different components set up. Um, but to give you an idea of what the game would look like in your hands, if you were to buy it, here is a, a, a selection of artwork and cards and graphic design that we've made so you can see it. So what we did was we had some cards and components. We had the board ready to go um, that we'd paid for with our own funds um, so that people could see what the game would look like. So this is no longer about the just the tone of feel. We're saying this is the, the game. This is how it's going to look. Um, also, you're going to want to go to reviewers to get them to obviously get reviews of your game before you go to Kickstarter. So we had um, prototypes of the game made up where we had, um, you know, um, uh, filler artwork where we didn't have the characters. So if we didn't have a character artwork done yet, we had a silhouette put in its place, but everything else was the finished artwork. So there was the backgrounds were ready, the icons were ready. Um, we just had to spend that money to do that. And if you're going to self-publish, you're going to have to put in some of your own resource before you get the funds from Kickstarter to be able to do that. Um, and, and that's what this stage is for at this point. When you're spending money on custom artwork, your game really should be finished in terms of the design. Your replace work should be uh, at, at an absolute minimum, if not completely stopped. There shouldn't be any replacing components unless there's something that someone spots that breaks the game or there's a real um, unfair advantage for certain players. You know, you're not really changing much after each playtest with any uh, reviewers or prototype um, players, sorry, playtesters. Um, so at that point, if you're going to self-publish, go to Kickstarter, get some reviewers, there's the point where I say, now you're okay to start spending money on custom components and custom artwork because you're trying to give people an idea of what the game is going to look like as a finished product. Right. And like you just said, this is for people who want to start a business, who want to yes. get into publishing. You know, if you're just going to be pitching, do not do this. I mean, there's just, just no reason, no reason at all. But if you are going to start a business, if you are going to go to crowdfunding and, and try to get this game brought to life, then you got to understand the market. And yeah. so there's a few different things to realize. One, crowdfunding has become a very crowded place. Yeah. And a lot of multi-gazillion dollar companies use crowdfunding constantly. And they have raised the bar as far as what backers expect when it comes to quality, when it comes to artwork, when it comes to how finished the game is, even before the crowdfunding campaign launches. They, they've changed the, the system, so mm -hmm. to speak. And you just have to realize that. And you can fight against it, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being a super indie publisher and going out there and saying, hey, here's my game, and this is my, my thing, and I, I've got this huge passion for it, and I just need your help. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you're going to stand out a lot more, and you're going to actually be able to bring in a lot more backers if you learn to play the game well. And sadly, unfortunately, for a lot of folks, it is a pay-to-play game. Yeah. you got to put the money in. you got to put a good chunk of investment on the front end to get a, a big, you know, uh, return on the back end. 
And not only like you're talking about with art and, and components, and things like that, it's it's just the quality overall of the prototype that you send out, the quality yeah. of the prototype that you take pictures of, that you do videos with, because you have one opportunity for a backer to land on your campaign page and them to go, whoa, or no. Yeah. And you obviously want to be on that whoa side of things where they go, wow, this looks amazing. I have to give this person my money, even though I'm not going to receive this game for a year or a year and a half or whatever. Like that's a big hurdle to overcome, especially if it's an expensive game. Now, if you have a $15 game that, you know, it's an 18 card game, it's an easy, you know, impulse buy, then it's not as big of a, a thing to overcome. Mm-hmm. If you're selling a $100 game, it better look like it's worth $500. Like it better look amazing because that's a pretty decent chunk of money for somebody to give you, especially if they don't know you, if they haven't bought from you before, if they don't trust you yet, if you haven't delivered anything to them yet, if they haven't played one of your games and said, oh, this is really fun. I like this publisher. I like this designer yet. Like you're having to overcome so many obstacles. And so the last thing you want is for the art or the quality of your your prototypes to be just another obstacle that you have to overcome because you already have enough starting off. And so it's just it just is what it is. I know right now with Robomon, my prototypes... Oh man, they cost around $125 just yeah. for one because it's a lot of, and that's not including like art, like the art has just been a ton of money, you know, all that just is what it is, but just the components, just to go to the game crafter and say, Hey, I want one of those to send to a reviewer. It's 125 bucks. It just is what it is. Like there's no way around it. If I really want this campaign to do really well. And, and so that's just, you just know that going in anybody listening to this that wants to get into the Kickstarter side of things, please have your eyes wide open to the costs. It is not cheap to get into it is cheaper than other things like for for like it's a whole lot cheaper to do this than to start a restaurant you know or to do something like that but it is still not free and so just to to have people aware of that do you have anything else you want to add as far as that goes or anything else yeah just to continue on that point um you know i talked to a lot of people who say oh i'm thinking about self-design self-publishing you know because bev and i've done it um and i'll echo what i've heard other um guests of yours on this show say that if you're going to decide to self-publish um that's not the simplest, easiest way of getting your design out there into the world. If that's what you're looking to do to publish a design and get it into board game shops, um, then persevere with getting it published by another publisher, you know, keep pitching, keep going to events, keep building up your neural network. If you want to run a business and it is running a business where you're talking about accountants and taxes and running a website and paying for, you know, people to check over paperwork and things like that. Um, and all the other things that come with running a business, then self-publishing is for you, but it will mean that you'll spend less time playing games, less time designing games because you've got a business to run and to, to publish is really hard work. Um, especially when you even talk about, you know, distributors and getting out across the world, obviously with the shipping crisis we've got going on at the moment, the costs involved, it can get, get to a lot. Um, so I'll echo what you say there about, um, yeah, you know, if you're if you're thinking about self-publishing, um, then it's it's a lot of money, time, and effort. And if you are really just focusing on getting designs made and published, then consider continuing on and persevering with those publishers because it's it's really hard work. We love it. Bevan and I have had a really good time of it for the past few years, but it has been difficult. Um, you know, we obviously we're based in the UK. Brexit hit us really hard because um, to give you a little insight, we finished our first Kickstarter campaign, and all of our money was in pounds and pounds sterling. Um, but almost, I think. 80 to 90 percent of our expenses were in dollars our illustrator and our publish uh, printers all wanted everything in dollars uh, when brexit hit um the pound versus the dollar collapsed and we lost i think about 35 percent of the value of our kickstarter funds in 24 hours 
because the pound versus the dollar changed so drastically. So all of a sudden we, we were at a loss, you know, and these are the sort of things that can happen when you're running a business rather than designing games and, and going to pitch uh, to publishers and pitching it. So really do think hard if you want to be investing in running a business um, rather than just designing games. I think is, is, is probably the best advice I can give people. Right. Absolutely. It's just, things happen. You're like, you're, you yeah. are taking a risk, you know, and the yeah. bigger the campaign is, the more risk it turns into. Right. And I've seen success ruin a lot more people than failure. If I'm being honest. And I saw, I saw recently where uh, a guy sat down and he just kind of was very transparent about the campaigns he had run. And he's run some pretty big campaign, like multiple campaigns, multiple six figure campaigns. And he had made around $900,000 in revenue. So, you know, backers, saying, here, here's my money for the game. And after everything, all the expenses, the shipping, the manufacturing, all the stuff, $900,000 that came in turned into about $80,000 in profit. It's like, oh, wow. Like, that's not even 10%. You know, like, this is this is crazy. Like, the, like you think, oh, somebody made a million dollars on Kickstarter. Wow, they're set. They must have a huge profit. And it's like, not necessarily. <laughs> like you can yeah. easily lose money if you're not careful. And if something terrible happened like it did to you, like overnight, all of a sudden, not, through no fault of your own, yeah. you've lost money, you know? And so, yeah, it just is what it is, man. So having, having your eyes open. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to put people off. If you know that you want to go out there and publish board games and become a board game publisher, go do it. It's, it can be really rewarding. Like we had a nightmare with our first campaign, as I just described because of Brexit and a few other things. Um, but we decided to do a, a Kickstarter campaign for an expansion for the game. And I wasn't convinced that we had enough people out there in the world who even owned our original first game to justify getting an expansion. But Bevan was was convinced that we could do it. Um, and we went out there and we made more money on the expansion uh, raised on Kickstarter than the original game. So we had enough people who already had the game that one, they wanted the expansion and all the bits that came with it. But also what happened was, um, and we weren't expecting this, and you talked about this on your marketing um, episode, actually, um, the people that already had it kind of came our cheerleaders. So they started telling their friends and family, oh, I've got this game called Ghost. It's amazing. You should love it. There's an expansion I'm getting at the moment. But if you if you go on Kickstarter now, you can get a copy of the game and the expansion as one. And so they were recommending us to their friends. So it was a real turnaround moment for us because we kind of went, oh, people really like what we're doing and, and it, they're telling their friends about it and they're going out there and it's, it's it's going into the real world and we're seeing photographs, people playing it and people were tweeting about our game that we've done ourselves. We, we put this together ourselves and it, it really is a really rewarding experience. Um, in fact, one of our backers um, was a couple and they got married on Halloween. They had a, a Halloween themed wedding and um, they had ghostal components on their wedding cake so that we 3D printed for them large versions of the ghosts that come with the game and they had it on their wedding cake and on each, each table of their wedding, they had our game, the guests to play. I would never in a million years ma- imagine that anyone would ever do that with one of our games. Um, but they did. And it's just, it's such a wonderful memory for us that somebody enjoyed our game so much that they incorporated it into their wedding day. Um, and it's, it's hugely worth it. So it's a lot of hard work and you're going to have sleepless nights and you're going to stress and you're going to worry about money and about everything else and all the other little hiccups that come along the way, but it can also be super rewarding. So I don't want people to be off. I just want to say that make sure you think about it before you do it. And if you can get a business partner that you can work well with, because I, I love working with Bevan. He's a great person to work with. So um, I'm really, really lucky to have someone like him to do this with. Because I think if I did it by myself, I think I'd have packed it in a long time ago. It's just really hard. But together, it's been a, a really great experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Gino, this has been great. Any closing thoughts, anything you want to leave listeners with when it comes to prototyping? Um, go out there, 
make your prototype, it doesn't matter what it looks like, and playtest, playtest, playtest. And this applies digitally, it applies um, you know, in, in physical components, if you're on tabletop simulator, whatever it is, um, just get it made because the idea in your head is not going to get play tested. You're not going to get any feedback and, and make it better until you actually get it to the table. And you know what? It could be absolutely brilliant and wonderful and it could get published and it could be a wonderful experience for you and it might be terrible and that's fine, but you'll learn from it and the next game will be better. So I'll always say, no matter what the idea is, how bad you think it might be, get on the table, play test it and get some feedback and keep moving forward. Yeah, I totally Agree. Very cool, man. Where can people find you online? Do you have any games or any projects you want to tell people about? Yeah, so um, we are uh, Tinkerbot Games. You can find us on www.tinkerbotgames.com. We have a Kickstarter coming up later this year for our next game called Haunted Culture. Um, We actually learned a lot. So I think Bevan talked about this on your last last episode with him. Um, And we realized that we weren't going to fund as much as we'd hoped. So we closed that campaign down and we've learned a huge amount since then um, about what we did wrong because we were of looking at Kickstarter in the same way we looked at it a few years ago, but it's moved on so much now that campaigns have to be different. So we're going to be relaunching late this year, but what we'd really love to get is people's feedback on a draft campaign that we've got at the moment. So if anybody's interested, you can find it on our website. We'd love to hear your thoughts because um, the the conversation that happens on the, uh, the Facebook group for this podcast and your website is, is wonderful and the feedback people give is great. So if anybody's got any feedback for that, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and we're launching a podcast um, called Board Games Decoded, uh, which is for, not for board gamers, but it's for your friends and family that come to you and say, I'd love to play more board games. Can you recommend a board game that my family will all enjoy and we can play in our family board game night? Um, it's for those people. Because I, if like if you're like us, Gabe, um, a lot of people might come to you and say, oh, you're into board games, Gabe. I'm looking for a game for my family, but I don't really know where to, where to go. Um, this podcast is for them. It, it, it's, it's to help people who don't know the board game industry, who are looking for games for their family to play, to understand the types of games that are out there, all the different acronyms like BGG and FLGS and what's the difference between a mechanism and a theme and why there are zombies everywhere. Um, it's just to help them kind of decode the board game interest industry and get a family game night going. Awesome. Well, Gino, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with so many cool things that you have going on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, excited to, to hear more about your podcast and see the other games. And uh, yes, good luck with all that and everything else you got going on right now. Brilliant. Thanks, Gabe. Really appreciate it and really enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?